0: Welcome to the Mountain Bike Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Lee, with my co-host, Stephen Lewis. Hi. How you doing, man? I'm good. Good to hear. It's uh, late on a Friday. It's it's happy hour, they might say. Closing time. It is. And uh, we're getting this podcast done. This is where you listen to all things mountain bikes, whatever type of mountain biking you do. Sometimes accused of speaking of XC too much, so we'll try to fix that. Sorry, bud. Although we will speak a little bit about that today. Um, But just the same, uh, we'll try to keep it focused. We're back with a normal episode this week. We're going to have a deep dive. We are. Uh, We're going to cover some news, Mm -hmm. some questions. Indeed. Finish it off with some tips. Yeah. Get into the news. As per usual. Should we just get into the news? Why not? All right, let's do it. News team
1: assembles!
0: All right. Uh, First on the list. So we kind of have some like some sad news, if you will. Um, and then we have some positive news at the end, uh, which we'll, we'll share. We're just going to cover three things. Lots of things have happened. I know, but we're just going to cover three things,
1: three big things.
0: Yeah. First one, niner.
1: Yeah. Chapter I, 11.
0: Yeah. So, uh, do you know much about bank? I, I know a, a somewhat about uh, this. I just realized it sounds like I've declared bankruptcy before. And I'm like saying this from experience. I know something about bankruptcy, Okay. but I've never declared bankruptcy. I know that, I mean, I've said
1: bankruptcy. I wasn't like, like declaring like like bankruptcy. Like,
0: like Michael Scott? Yeah, definitely not. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Oh, that was such a good... Did you ever see that one? <laughs> no. He like ran out of the room and decided the only way to get out of... He thought the only way to get out of debt... Was to actually declare the word bankruptcy, like Good. to say it. Okay, so he ran out in the middle of the office and declared it with a panicked tone. It was fantastic. Perfect. Didn't realize that didn't fix anything. So, okay. anyways, uh, Niner. I don't know if they did the same thing, uh, but they declared Chapter Eleven bankruptcy. Yeah. So. For those that don't know, and once again, I am not an accountant, so please, or a CPA, or man, any type of a lawyer that deals with this sort of a thing. So if you are, and I've misspoke, I'm sure that you'll have plenty of room to correct me, but I'm going to try to not speak in too much detail and keep things vague. Anyways. Uh, Usually chapter 11, uh, so it seems in my experience and from what I've been told, is utilized as a way to restructure debt. Mm -hmm. Uh, In other words, if you have plenty of debt from a bunch of different sources, it consolidates that into basically one source that you end up paying off through one way uh, or to, uh, to one debtor in one, I guess, in one respect. And a lot of the time it happens when you're a company that carries a significant amount of debt, but you're becoming acquired. Yes. And in this case, it looks like what they're doing is they're selling off niner in one respect, or at least a portion of it, I should say, they're selling off a portion of it. I don't know how big that is. That could be small or large. And as a result, they're restructuring that debt because as a company, when you're coming in and buying a company and you have a bunch of loans to different creditors and everything else, that's messy and difficult to deal with. Exactly. So a lot of the time it's more about consolidation than like, we have no money. Right? Exactly. Yes. Because, uh, look, I mean, loans, anybody that, that has bought a car or bought a house, well, you know, not with cash. Uh, you know that sometimes loans are necessary, and for businesses, sometimes loans are necessary. Yeah, and y- you know, you may the perfect time to get acquired may come along before then, yeah. before you've paid it off. I mean, <clears throat> and maybe they want to consolidate that, so this is a way to get around it. Um, I know there's a lot of people crying foul about this, and they're saying that, like, you know, well, this is, you know, you guys are screwing over a lot of people that you owe money to. Uh, so they're talking about like everyone from equipment manufacturers for their OEM bikes. Mm-hmm. To dealers that perhaps have buyback programs. And for example, now they're like, you know, I don't know if Niner did this, but I know that some brands, for example, they'll say like, buy this much inventory. And for what you don't sell, we'll have a buyback program at the end where we'll take that back. Okay. And in that case, you know, you might, that could be considered debt actually. Yeah. Um, in this case, so that could be consolidated possibly with this. I'm not sure. And to be frank, none of us, I think are very sure as to exactly how it goes. Um, and what's working on or what's going on in this case, but just the same, uh, looks like they're getting acquired. I don't know what that means for Niner moving down the road. Uh, it sounds like they're getting acquired by some dudes that are cyclists and like-minded
1: and hopefully that you know is good for the brand yeah you know the one thing that i've seen a bunch of lately is you know not a ton of innovation coming out of niner Mm. and also i've seen a lot of quality control issues out of them Mm. you know there's a a personal friend of mine had a jet 9 rdo after you know six months he developed a well let's just say the bottom bracket fell out of the bike (laughs) <laughs> so he gets a brand new frame, and within a month, same thing happened again. So then they sent him another one. So so it, kudos to them for sending them. Yeah, absolutely. They took it's care awesome. of the customer, which is that's obviously job number one. Yeah. Um, but also that gets expensive.
0: Yeah, it does. So, so yeah, that's so that's what you're getting at really yeah. is the fact that the quality control problems. Everyone faces quality control problems at one point or another, but it's yeah. extremely costly. Yeah, for
1: a company, very costly.
0: Yeah, um, I mean. Uh, So this is just, you know, speaking personally on this, I I, I assume also from a branding perspective that Niner faces a bit of a problem. I mean, Niner, 29er. I know when, you know, 29ers were novel, this was, it made sense, right? But it was, it's a short-lived one because you're basically attaching yourself to a single configuration as a brand or a single model. And, you know, that's not long-term. And
1: and the problem is, you know, they branded themselves for an era that doesn't exist anymore. You know, you look at, at, look at all their geometries now. I'm sorry, but everybody makes a better 29 inch long travel bike. Everybody makes a better 29 inch cross country bike. Yeah, they there's some serious stuff that needs to happen within Niner for them to be, you know, to continue to be relevant or relevant.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I agree with that. And I think that Niner probably knows it. And I believe I even read that the founder said that like we've we've lagged behind on innovation. Absolutely. And it's been difficult for them to do that. Um. So, yeah. Uh, but. Uh, anyways, it's interesting to see where that goes. You know, one way that I could see this going a lot of the time when a conglomerate comes in or any type of a larger financial structure comes in and purchases a company like Mm -hmm. this. One of the things that I think is an appealing option for them is basically like, we have a brand that already has manufacturing in place. Yes. And what we can do is we can take that brand and we can increase volume by going to, you know, hopefully it's something like REI performance bike, something like that. That's like, you know, still bike, bike 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 yeah and not like we can go to walmart <laughs> you yeah. know because that's one way that you can basically try to sp- to get some profit is to overcome with volume, you know? Yeah, so.
1: but I but I also think that Niner has the ability, or I guess I should say Columbia Basin Partners who's looking yeah. at buying them, has the opportunity to take a well respected brand within the mountain bike world and <laughs> completely reinvent it. You already totally. have you already have, like you said, your manufacturing in line, you already have your logistics in mind, you already have your dealer network, you already have your, your loyal customers. Yep. If you can completely rebrand it and regrow Niner from nothing, like from the ashes, essentially yeah. of bankruptcy, yeah, great. This could be a very good thing.
0: Yeah, no easy task for sure, but it's absolutely not impossible. It's yeah. happened plenty of times. Absolutely. So I mean, look at Apple. Yeah. So yeah, it could happen. Uh, next one, next bit of news, and this one hits close to home, uh, quite close to home. Local. Yes. Uh, Yt USA and Cam Zinc part ways. Um, so. If you look at this, this is just basically Pink Bike. It's almost like TMZ stuff because they're just like quoting, you know, what they're He's, he's – they're just saying what he said on his Insta story. Yeah. Um, so I want to be clear on something here and uh, say that I don't have any, you know, I don't have any like uh, ability to get some, you know, insider knowledge or anything else like this. Yeah. But this much I do want to say uh notice that it says they uh, they're just saying the official last day as YT USA is what cam said yes YT so the way that YT structured things to my knowledge and it's a german company but as they expanded into different areas like the US for example they handled it somewhat akin to like a franchise in the sense that they basically allowed, you know, Cam already had census and everything else. And they basically said, this is a great partner to work with here. And yeah. we can work, do distribution and handle the U.S. operations out of here. We still make the bikes in Germany, everything else. And you'll kind of just operate YT USA like a franchise. Which right?
1: is essentially how KTM bike industries in the U.S runs now.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah. They are a franchise. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Yes. I didn't know if that was uh that was the official way to do it. So, so, uh, this doesn't, and I'm not speaking from any insider knowledge. So, um, and like, I'm not speaking for cam here and I don't know. Um, but this might pay attention official last day as YT USA. That doesn't necessarily mean that cams off YT bikes. No, that does is not what mean I'm getting that at, at. So, and, uh, I'm not sure if pink bike, you know, I'm not sure if they, they realize what they, implied there but i'm sure a lot of people think that yt and cam are done and i'm not sure that's the case I don't think so either. So anyways, um, yeah, I, I could see I could see YT just doing this to kind of restructure their business. And when I say restructure their business, I'm not using that as like a, a euphemism or anything else, like genuinely just looking at it and saying, Maybe we don't want to do franchise.
1: Maybe yeah, maybe we want maybe to bring that back in-house. Maybe we wanna control everything. You look at what Canyon did in the US. Yep. They they kept everything within their company.
0: Yeah, exactly. And they're just right. doing
1: distribution out of the US exactly. instead of franchising. Yep. So, you know, just from an accounting and financial standpoint. Having a franchisee, yeah, sell your bikes out of the you know out of the U.S. for you doesn't help your bottom line. Doesn't make you look like any better of an operation, right? Sh- business wise, right? If you run the business, it's all built into your structure and yeah. your uh, your financial structure, your logistics structure, everything. If it's all done in house, that gives you. I guess more, I don't want to say credence, but it makes you, yeah. it looks better on paper, more weight, you're saying, more right? weight. Exactly.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, we're getting into business stuff.
1: <clears throat> we are. Let's hop into the
0: next thing that yes. is a business thing too. Sorry, y'all. Um, but this all affects us in the end. Uh, Mercedes Benz signs, signs on his title sponsor, the UCI world cup. And it's funny when you look at the picture, they're showing a truck, which in Europe, I'm sure Mercedes Benz makes their trucks. And I know they've announced that they want to bring them to the U S and everything else. But I can't help but think that the main vehicle for Mercedes that really hits home for cyclists is the sprinter van. The sprinter van, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny they didn't use that. But anyways, cool to see Mercedes-Benz presenting it. Um, I wonder if this is almost like a, Mercedes-Benz says, Audi has the World Cup ski s- events and everything that surrounds skiing. Yeah. I wonder if we're, you know Mercedes is saying, oh, we want to take this outdoor sport. So anyways, pretty cool, man.
1: Um, but you see- I see sprinter van the whole van life thing yes definitely decidedly not cross-country no more gravity oriented indeed okay <laughs> yeah see where you're going okay
0: all right uh steven let's get into the questions
1: yes question It's a ridiculous question false well, that's debatable
0: first one this one's long and tough uh ben likes to party He's the submitter allegedly, allegedly, according to Ben. Yeah, and he says, "Can there be too much party on the trail?"
1: Well, Ben, (laughs) I'm sure people are like, "Why are you wasting our time with this?" (laughs) So this can go a lot of different ways. Yeah. 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 Yes, there can be too much party, but there can be too much party in multiple manners. Yes. Too much party. You go on an XC ride with a downhill bike. Yes, that is too much party
0: for that for that
1: particular trail, that particular ride. Turn
0: it on its head. Exactly. Yeah, take an XC bike. Up into some downhill
1: terrain, and that is not enough party at all Uh on the bike. On the bike, plenty of
0: party on the trail. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, can there be too much party on the trail? Certainly. Yeah. Evidence is brokenness.
1: Yeah. Yeah. When you've got a bone sticking out of your leg, there is definitely too much party there. So solved. We're we're
0: solving. Yeah. So yes, there can be. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So the chicken did not come first. (laughs) Yes. Daniel, greetings
0: from Denmark. Thank you for an awesome podcast. I listen to you every time I commute to work. Makes the trip a lot more entertaining. I'm about to refill sealant but I bought orange sealants instead of stands. I've heard that some sealants do not mix well. So do I have to completely remove all dried sealant from my tire or can I just fill in new stuff? Thanks in advance. Keep up the good work. So before we address like the removing the dry sealant, can you mix two sealants?
1: Yeah. It's usually as long as it's a latex-based not, yeah, yeah, you can, you can mix stands and orange seal. Yeah. You can mix, you know, slime has their, um, their latex based tubeless sealant. Yeah. You can do that. I'm sure if you talk to them, they'd say like, no, no, no. If you use our sealant mixed with
0: another one, then it voids. There's no warranty, but it voids a guarantee or something like that. It makes it less. Your effective. bike will explode. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I've done the same. I've had, I've had stands and then I've had orange seal and I've mixed them and it's okay.
1: Yeah. And, and my, and, my,
0: my wheel didn't fall off.
1: That's true. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Okay.
0: Now let's talk about removing dry sealant though.
1: No, if you, the only thing that I would do is obviously the, you know, the infamous Stanimal. Yes. That's associated with stands and some other brands. If people don't know what Stanimals are, they're the
0: strange little creatures that form as stands dries inside your rims. Yeah. And you can name them if you wish. Yeah. Yep.
1: Larry. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so you want to remove those. Yes. The skim coating that's actually, around the d- entire question. Do
0: you want to remove those? Or could that actually, if you packed all of your standimals into your wheel, could it be like a new Cush core system?
1: Shut up. <laughs> Patent <laughs> office I, right now. Right now. Okay. Yeah. yeah sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's continue. Re- that's upcycling right there. <laughs> <Continue>. <laughs>
0: okay. Send everyone. Send us your standimals. <laughs> yes, please.
1: Uh, Sell PO them. box. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, but to answer your other question, you want to remove your standables and any loose, you know, Mm -hmm. sealant that dries up. You also want to remove, if you end up with any puddles from your bike sitting for a very long time and drying in a nice, you know, heavy flat spot, remove that, Mm -hmm. but don't take the time to remove the skim coat out. You want to actually leave that in there.
0: Yeah. And the only time I would say that you might want to remove a little bit of that dried sealant, like we talked about the situation Steven mentioned, the other one is if you've like... Burped or bent your rim and you have like excessive buildup around the bead. Oh, then yes. Absolutely. Then take that off. Yeah. Like what I usually do is I clean off, like I'll just grab and it usually pulls off all in one piece. Yeah. I'll grab the sealant. that's right around my bead and I'll pull that off. Yeah. And that's it. Yep. Um, yeah. And like you said, any puddles that form that can create a, a spot of weight in your tire, which exactly. is totally annoying. Yep. So, Darren says, I want to start by saying your podcast is one of my favorites and please keep up the good work. We will. Darren, hopefully more consistently. On a recent episode, you said the Santa Cruz wheels are white label. I was just listening to an interview with Joe Graney on the Vital MTB podcast, and he goes into a lot of detail about how Santa Cruz developed the wheels in-house. Just thought I would submit this correction because you guys are normally really good with your advice and insight into the industry. Thanks again for hosting a killer podcast. Thanks, Darren. Thanks for sending that over. And yeah, uh, uh, perhaps we overspoke in that situation because yeah. you and I have not been inside Santa Cruz's headquarters to yeah. verify this fact.
1: Exactly. Yeah. That's true. So we 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 may have overspoken there. Yeah.
0: We do, however, want to take, use this as an opportunity to get into some, some be wordsmiths of sort, but get into semantics. Yes. Uh, developing a product does not mean that you
1: manufacture it. That's a very, two very different things.
0: Yes. yes. Like can you, can you, um, so outside of Santa Cruz, once again, we're not saying that Santa Cruz doesn't develop their wheels in this case, but, uh, I know plenty of people that have products that are manufactured overseas in Asia. And they claim that they develop them, and that's a strategic usage of the word. Yes.
1: What, what are they actually meaning? So take a bike brand and... What they're going to do when they're developing a new frame or a new rim or a new anything, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter what part it is. Yeah. What they're going to do is- Especially
0: they're gonna, with carbon we're talking
1: about. Uh, absolutely. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But even even aluminum. Okay. Cool. So what they're going to do is they're going to order frame sets uh-huh. or saddles or seat posts or whatever the part is. Yeah. They're going to order different samples that are going to be different layup matrices, different thicknesses of layup. And we'll just stick to carbon fiber just okay. for simplicity purposes. Cool and they're gonna order them in different designs. They're gonna be manufactured in different processes. They're gonna use different, you know, weaves of carbon. They're gonna use a different resin. They're gonna use different thicknesses. They're gonna, maybe even, you know, usually your, your mules that are gonna be geometry um, mm-hmm. test based are going to be alloy and then they're going to start making them out of carbon. Mm-hmm. So what they're going to do is they're going to design all of these different layup processes and all these different manufacturing processes, and they're going to send some, some sa- samples. Mm-hmm. And then the test writers are all going to ride the different samples and they're going to find what they like and don't like about said particular product. Right. Then they're going to go back to the actual manufacturing facility overseas. Yep. And they're going to say, Hey, we like this about test sample number one. We like this about test sample number two. We didn't like this. And they're going to give them a list of things that they want changed. And things that they want better yes and then they're gonna send the next one and that's how you whittle it down and that's how you whittle it down to a production yep
0: product now you can design those those samples that you're getting you can design them
1: in-house and most and most bigger brands do
0: Yep. And you can prototype mm-hmm. that with different products there. Like for example, a lot of most carbon bikes start out as an aluminum bike first Yes, absolutely. and they'll be testing that bike out and because they can fab it up quickly there mm-hmm. and they're really, what they're testing out is the geometry or the suspension design or something yes. like that. Yes. Right. And then what they'll do is they'll look at the angles of the bike and then they'll say, okay, we need to run, whether it's like finite element analysis or anything else on the frame or on the design, they'll run it through, uh, programs to be able to think of how it needs to be laid up and in-house. they'll send those specs overseas to be manufactured. Yes. And then they, then continues that process that you just laid yeah. out. Right.
1: So at the end of the day, that is developing in-house. Yes. That's it. Manufacturing in-house is completely different.
0: Envy is an example of, and I know uh, we somebody wrote in and was upset at us because we talk about Envy and they said that, you know, like you guys assume that everyone can buy Envy. No, we, we've never no. assumed that yeah. at all. No, not at all. They're just exemplary for a lot of things. And and like, you know, I, I know it's cool to hate Envy in one respect, but because they put themselves out there as a target, but ride their wheels, man, with yeah. that, and be impartial. They're yeah. good. Yeah. They are so good. And they are, a f- but the reason I bring them up is because they're a company that manufactures in-house.
1: They do they all of their own development.
0: Every single thing happens there. Yeah. They don't make the
1: carbon fiber, of course. They oh. order that. Yeah. That comes in. But that that's comes from it. three factors factories in the world. Yeah. All carbon fiber.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, when you're getting down to it, um, I basically, I say this just to, to stop people from, from being so polarized on this subject to think mm-hmm. that like, oh no, they're a hundred percent made here or they're a hundred percent made in Asia. And no, like th- the fact is that there's a better way to do this yeah. when you work together and utilize the manufacturing capabilities of over- overseas Yeah, and then as over in Asia, especially, they're very good with carbon fiber production. Yeah. And then when you deal with ins- in-house and that whole type of R&D process that yeah. you're doing, that's the way to do it. Yeah. So, so getting, I don't know if that's what they did in this case, Santa Cruz specifically. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. So
1: yeah. You know, but but, but then that wouldn't be bad. Yeah. But getting specifically back to that Santa Cruz and Joe Graney statement, that is exactly what we're describing. Yeah. Developed in-house. Yeah. Yeah. There is a difference. Yeah. We don't know what Santa Cruz is actually doing. Yeah. But from my understanding, from the sales reps that I know and the dealers that I know and the two people I know within Santa Cruz, those are not manufactured in-house. Right. They as were in, developed in-house.
0: Though. As in they don't have a lab there where they're laying up the rims every day. And they under. don't have an
1: autoclave. They're not, you know, they're right. not doing all of the finishing. They're not building those, in Santa Cruz. those rims there.
0: Yeah. Right. And, and and once again, we could be wrong. So please, yeah. Joe Graney, if you're listening to this, let us know if we are. What do you mean if? Um, <laughs> I thought we went over this. <laughs> yeah. uh, but the thing with this is like, you have to get this out of your mind that it would be bad of them to do it. Otherwise Yeah, it's not, it's not, that's how it works. That's how it works. And it's a good thing because they're better at manufacturing that way. And otherwise, if everyone did it in house. You know how expensive
1: your stuff would be? Exactly. We all complain about being expensive now. Everybody would be as expensive as Envy. Yeah. If everybody developed and and manufactured. And
0: and it doesn't mean that, and Envy is very good at manufacturing. Yeah. It takes a lot for a company to be good at manufacturing. Absolutely. Um, There are plenty of bike companies out there that are probably pretty poor at manufacturing carbon products. Yeah. Uh, because they focus on doing other things better and they let the best people do that. Yeah.
1: So they design them, develop them and let someone else actually manufacture them.
0: That's how it works. So, um, don't hate on, on overseas manufacturing. It's uh yeah, it's not terrible
1: stuff. But yes, at the end of the day, thank you, Darren, for helping point us that or point that out.
0: Good call. Uh, next question is from, is the ASR no longer? Should I just address that one already?
1: Yes. I feel like I've got that question. Yeah.
0: I feel like I've, we, so we've had no less than probably 30 people send in this question <laughs> yeah. recently. Uh, the ASR if you go to the website is no longer. It's gone, but I think that they want to know something else other than that. What do they want to know? Uh, they want to know like if uh, if XC is done or Yeti is done with XC. I think is what, what the 4 point5 isn't enough Yeah <laughs> yeah that's pretty XC. Uh, Yeti is not
1: done with XC. I'll leave it at that. Is that yeah. okay? That is okay okay. They like XC too. They do. Okay. But you know what? At the end of the day, there's always the Cannondale scalpel and it's a better bike anyway.
0: <laughs> there we go.
1: He says, okay, guys, first up five stars for certain. Absolutely love tying
0: in an MTV podcast on the ride to work and a trainer road podcast on the way home. Favorite way to spend the day and basically a solid three hours of Jonathan's voice.
1: <laughs> All right, weirdo. I feel like, I feel like I should
0: have had a way better voice. like been born with golden pipes. If people will yeah. be listening to me this much, huh? Says anyway, BC bike race is on for me next year. Good job, man. That'll be cool. And I'm getting prepped with both training and bike setup. Riding a 2018 model Trek top fuel 9.8. So that is, uh, that's their XC bike. That is their full XC, mm-hmm. full suspension. And, uh, yes, we're talking about XC again. Sorry, everybody. He says, uh, I have new wheels on the way. Acros hubs laced to Duke carbon rims. The bike is already running an Eagle 12 speed. So gearing is covered. The final two upgrades needed, needed are a dropper. Most likely going with a KS Lev carbon. Nice. Mm-hmm. And he says, and a slightly longer travel fork 120. All right, so two questions for you, one of which may start a debate. Fox 34 or Pike? This one actually has started a debate. Of it course. has already. Yeah. <laughs> so
1: at first, I'm thinking that the Pike is too much. Okay. It's too much fork for a 120-mil t- a bike.
0: It's a bit portly. It, and even in 120, yeah. it's a, 1,800 grams.
1: It's over. Yeah, it's 1,840 and change, I think. Yeah. yeah. So it is a little portly for that bike. But also at the same time, if you're gonna take a cross country bike and go to one twenty, there's not a lot of rock shock options. Yeah, because
0: otherwise you have so the SID used to come, I think, in a 120 and now it's I don't eighty think it and one hundred on everything. So you're basically left up to the Reba and the Revelation. Uh both of which is kind of like six half dozen between the two of them and yeah. 120,
1: you know. Yeah. You get a better damper on the revelation.
0: Yeah. It's a little light. It's lighter than the pike. I think it it's is. what, 1700 something grams, yeah. something around there. But uh, you're not going to get as good of a damper. And you're also going with 32 millimeter stanchions. Yeah. Which I would say at 120 mils, it's really nice to have a statter stanchions in that.
1: Especially on... The races that you're looking at doing
0: yeah the rs1 is a bit exceptional in yeah. the sense that you've got such a stiff upper and everything else then it, you know it's not as bad but yeah um yeah i i honestly think the pike is a pretty awesome fork it, in yeah. 120 it kind of would be
1: yeah now the 34 the fox 34 I, is about 100 grams lighter
0: and i do feel like um i feel like it's a better option
1: i think the new fit for Evil, yeah damper is just far better than the Pike.
0: Yeah. So the Pike, the new Pike will have the charger Two damper. In it, yeah. I believe is the name of it. Yeah. And it's, it's solid. It's good. Yeah. Um, I would just, and I guess it really comes down to, to preference here. If you like the feel of a rock shocks or you like the feel of a Fox, cause they do feel distinctly different. They do. Fox has a certain plushness to it, especially an initial plushness mm-hmm. to it. Whereas rock
1: shocks will have more initial support. Um, a fox is going to be more progressive. The Evol damper yeah. fixes a lot of that, but it's still going to feel a little bit stiffer down in the bottom 40 mils of travel.
0: Yeah. I, I personally, for XC stuff, don't like Fox. Uh, I don't like that initial wobbliness. Okay. It makes my bike feel not as stiff. And I'm fine with, with a, a bike that runs a little more chattery over stuff or has a little more feedback okay. uh, in XC. Once okay. I get into like trail stuff and enduro stuff, I actually start to prefer more the Fox feel. Okay. But um, for XC, man- yeah. I mean, you can't go wrong either way, I guess is what we're getting to. But if you are a person that likes the initial plushness of a Fox and keep in mind, you're doing BC bike race for a week. So maybe taking the edge off all those bumps yeah. might be nice.
1: And the Fox. weight reduction.
0: Yep. If you're looking for something that's just a little more burly and you're, it'll give you an even more stout feeling front end with 35 millimeter stanchions. And we'll have a bit of more of like an initial support feel to it. Yeah. Pike. All right. He says, more importantly, what's your recommendation for changes to handlebar stem height length once I change to a 120 millimeter fork from a 100 as he has, right? I have my perfect position for hundred millimeters, but will that now change? Apologies for the
1: long question. Keep with the good work. This is going to be more question for you because my engineering side says, no, you're not going to want to change anything, uh-huh. but me too. You, okay. I agree. Okay. hundred percent. Because nothing really changes within your cockpit and yeah. everything. It just brings your head tube angle yeah. back a little bit.
0: Nothing and it changes. will raise the it will it will raise um, the stack of your bike. Well, of course. Uh, but I would I would advise against the thing that most XC guys do, which they just try whatever they can do to just drop the stack as low as they possibly can. Yeah. And when you think, oh man, I'm going to go to 120, so I need to get like a negative 17 degree stem on there. Yeah. I don't think you do. Uh, yeah. y- you having your arms just 20 millimeters higher, two centimeters higher. In many cases on this XC bike, especially at BC bike race, it might actually make your bike handle a whole lot better if your arm's not anchored down that low in the front. Absolutely. So it's not the end of the world. You'll get used to it and I bet you'll actually like it. Yeah. Um, just a forecasting thing out there. I think most XC bikes will come, uh, as a reverse mullet in the future
1: and by reverse mullet. 120
0: front. Yeah. By reverse mullet. I mean that, that, so yeah. And look at a lot of the specialized employees all have Epics that are specced with 120s, not from the factory, but they have put them on themselves. Yeah. So, it's like the party bike for XC guys. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's like the O'Douls. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> sparkling. There's <laughs> like the sparkling cutter. spider. Yeah. Or sparkling cider instead yeah. of, you know, champagne. Anyways, business o ferrets. That's the next question he says, or from this man. He says, for, or female. Yeah. Not sure. Yeah. Who knows? First off, you guys are head and shoulders above all other podcasts.
1: Did you get the shampoo? <laughs> yeah, That's a
0: good one. Yeah. Good. I am loving all the technical info and how you guys cover all specialties of mountain biking. I've recently got into XC racing here in Florida, flat Sandy with little elevation change. And I'm about to wrap up my first full season. Looking forward to next season. I've already started trainer road. Nice man. Mm-hmm. My question. I'm currently riding a 2014 specialized camber carbon expert 29. That's a sweet trail bike yeah. right there. Seeing how it is classified as a trail bike, could I expect to pick up any time by switching to an Epic or a scalpel, or should I just stop looking for excuses and focus on my training? P.S. <laughs> Keep up the dad jokes. Yeah,
1: good. Here we are. Yeah. Uh, Mr. or Mrs. Business Affairs. <laughs> yes. Especially on a flat, sandy, assuming high speed yeah. XC course, you will gain so much from going down to a hundred mil bike. Yeah, you will in this case. And Mm -hmm. just, just from an efficiency of the suspension motion, efficiency of your pedaling. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: When you're getting into, if you know, West coasters that are listening to this and you ride mountainous terrain, we're not talking to you with this one. No, Uh, we're talking about people that ride in predominantly flat stuff. Now I know that, uh, Florida actually has a decent amount of technical terrain and a lot of like man-made features and a lot of little ups and downs. They have a bunch of different areas um, where you're kind of racing through the Everglades. Yeah. So, uh, we want to make it clear that we know that you're not riding on bike paths all day. Yes. Um, but even then I, I, think that you would be much better off. Absolutely. In uh, that said that bike, the camber and specialized lineup, that's the one that most people should be buying. Okay. Everyone listening to this dudes with Enduros that think you're too gnarly yeah. or dudes that think you're too roady to have anything but an Epic. Yeah. Look around. Camber. Ah, Steven. Not me. Okay. I, I'm I feel not
1: like... <laughs> God.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I feel like every week we have to do this. Yes. He says, Hey guys, you talked about power meters in the previous podcast. Any thoughts on bike computers like the stages dash? Jonathan was totally into the stages brand. Same for their computer then. Okay. Um we should clarify. I mean, it's not that I'm like super into the stages brand, although I do think this in not against it. No. Um but you, um You do run a stages power meter. I do, yeah. Um on my mountain bike. Yes. Yep. And on my cross bike. Yeah but not on my road bike. Okay. I have a cork on there. Oh. Um, yes. Oh, fancy. Yeah. <laughs> I do like the cork better. Um, but you know, it, it's just simply in terms of your power data, it's, it's six half dozen. It's,
1: it's, be the it's not about, it's not about the accuracy of how much power is putting down. It's the consistency and stages does a great job and they're cheaper. Yep. That's exactly. Really what it boils down to. So for 99% of everybody, That's why stages is so well recommended on this podcast is because it works. Yep. And that's who we're providing
0: recommendations for. All of us average Joes, the stage is dash their head unit. I'm actually not interested in it. Okay. Um, okay. R- the reason for that is because it's, uh, now you'd think that me being like the power guy and the numbers and everything else, you'd think that I would uh, be into it, but no, I want my head unit to do more than that. Okay. So, because to be honest, in most cases, if I'm doing power-based training, I'm inside and I'm using trainer road and I want to have an app interface that's specifically made for that. Right. Okay. Like I don't, I don't. I don't need a head unit to just give me numbers. I use mm-hmm. my head unit when I'm out on the road for mapping a lot, yeah. um, for trails and everything else. I, ins- I've installed custom maps on my Garmin. You can look up DC rainmakers site to find out how to do that. Yeah. Um, he has a walkthrough on there. Um, that's what I really like a head unit for. Mm-hmm. It's not just the data. Um that said, I do applaud stages for making something that's so just focused on that. So yeah. it's pretty cool. Um, one thing that I think is really cool about it is how you can run it in landscape mode instead of just portrait mode. Yeah. And for mountain biking, especially that's cool. Cause it doesn't stick way out in front. Totally. So yeah, it's cool stuff. He says, also, I was watching a video with Rob Warner and Yolanda Neff and caught Yolanda saying it's not about the numbers or producing any times or anything. This got my attention. Is it really like that? Or is it, and no offense, an illustration on what pro mountain biking is, just having fun? Or is it a mental game in order to paralyze the opponents? Ah, shots fired from Yolanda on that one. Also, why are some, uh, he says, so little pro XC guys racing and, and gals racing with power meters? I know the weight penalty, but for a trainer, it gives so much valuable information. Thanks for your insights and weekly updates on mountain bikes. Great stuff. Cheers from Belgium. Ah. Ah. Yes. Good. Yeah. Okay. I like their fries. <laughs> and, and yes. Very good. Uh, do you
1: want to opine on this one at all, Steven? Um, you know, I think at the end of the day results in a race or what give you the most data uh, to a trainer. Oh. I mean, at the end of the day, that's really what it's about. It doesn't give the trainer
0: the most data. I would argue that. Well, it
1: gives you the most accurate data. Did you win or did you not win? <laughs> well, no. Cause in the end, what happens
0: if everybody crashes? You still suck on a bike, but everyone crashes.
1: <laughs> a trainer, like a crit race. <laughs> yeah. So if a trainer
0: is saying that like, great job, I'm doing a great job because yeah. I, you know. No, I, I, so I get what you're saying. But... In my, so that's like results driven versus data driven. Okay. And I do think that the majority, not the majority, I do think that this is, this is oddly and incorrectly prevalent in professional bicycle racing. Okay. There's a lot of it that's based on tradition and there are a lot of people out there on the road and mountain bike side that don't use a power meter and it's, and they're very uninformed as a result of not using that power meter, but they're also very uninformed on the benefits of using a power meter. Okay. So, um, yeah, I think that there are actually a lot of people that have a lot to gain by using power data. Okay. Um, this is an example of the fact that pro cycling is not always the spot to look for in terms of leading innovation. So, uh, early adopters. Pro cyclists certainly are not. And we know that
1: in general from a lot of different aspects of pro cycling, both on the roadside and mountainside.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. And the cyclocross
1: world, I mean, they still use tubulars. Yeah. I remember 1960. Actually, I don't. (laughs) I wasn't even born yet.
0: I mean, look at disc brakes. Dear me on the roadside of things. absolutely. Um, and with power meters, the weight penalty. I'm sorry, it's, it's, it's I'm sorry, it's negligible.
1: It's 40 grams. Yeah,
0: it's negligible. P more. Yeah, like you're, you're fine. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Spit twice, and exactly. then you've got it right. Yeah. So um, it's it's not it's not a weight thing. It's basically a problem that we have where cycling itself tends to be generational in how it develops and how it recycles itself. Yeah. In the sense that pro cyclists, they reach the end of their career, they go into team management uh, they manage products within a brand or the manager brand itself, or they coach athletes very regularly. Mm -hmm. So as an athlete that's been through it, you know, I've walked, you know, I've walked up and up uphill, both ways to school in the snow type of a thing. Mm -hmm. I know best, right? That's what the athlete thinks. Yeah. So I'm going to share what I've learned with these other athletes and you have tons of valuable stuff to share, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that your methods are the best way to get there. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I see a ton of people that are training by heart rate and it blows me away. Like, like why, if you're a professional athlete, why are you training with heart rate? That is so bad. Like, um, it, using a heart rate monitor to, to collect data, fine. Yeah. But using it to structure your, your workout interval. Because of terrible. how many
1: variabilities within... Uh-huh daily. Yeah. How much sugar did you consume? How much magnesium mm-hmm. is in your system? There's so many things oh, yeah. that change what your heart rate will be at a certain effort. Yeah.
0: Stress, caffeine, temperature, yeah. uh, barometric pressure, hormones. I, I, the list can go on your position on your bike. Uh, how so closed many, off I your chest that. is yeah. like just, yeah, exactly. It's, it's so much. Yeah. And, and so, and also there's a problem with heart rate in the sense that it's a lagging indicator of effort. So go out right now, Put your bike into its... Well, don't do this right now if you're listening to the podcast or something and it makes it or dangerous. if you're driving a car, don't yeah, yeah, do this. Yeah, don't do yeah. this either. But next time you're on your bike, just stomp on the pedals as hard as you can in your biggest gear and do that for as long as you can. And watch your heart rate. And what will happen is that your heart rate will not measure or not show the fact that you were doing hard work for that whole period of time. It's It'll only going to show... show eventually. Exactly right. So and why, afterwards. So why in the world would you be trying to structure something that has a start and an end... With data that looks, that smooths all of that out and doesn't show it. Yeah. It's crazy, man. Yeah. Um, so it's, a lot of it is misinformation and a lack of education on the benefits of power meters. Um, and, uh, now that said, there's also the other side of things and maybe she knows about power meters and her trainer does too. And he knows that if she focuses on that power data, that it might be a distraction to her or a discouraging thing to her okay. like juniors for example i'm thinking they don't need to look into the numbers perhaps all the time some yeah. of them do but a lot of them just want to ride exactly and a person like yolanda neff is an insanely hard worker and trainer but at the same time maybe she just has this side of her because she does seem like a very fun loving person mm-hmm. maybe that is a discouragement to her who yeah. knows so um, all of that said, that is the disclaimer. Yeah.
1: And especially when you get into stuff like the juniors, you you end up, you know, the, the cost of admission to training by power is way oh, more expensive. Completely and you, prohibited. It, and it's not to say that you don't get a benefit from heart rate training. It's just yeah. nowhere near as accurate as or useful as power-based training.
0: And I would argue track your heart rate all the time. Sure. Like it can be insightful, but as soon as you, you let that heart rate call Especially if you have power, as soon as you say, oh, well, I don't trust my power meter because my heart rate said this, you've made a mistake. Like Mm. your power meter is an objective measurement. Trust that. Yeah. Um, your, your heart rate monitor or your heart rate data should have a massive, like a, a cow's salt lick size grain of salt to the side that you, you keep with that. Yeah. Um, and I would argue that actually just using rate of perceived exertion, like a one to 10 scale, 10 being all out, everything you can do one being just not pedaling, just like coasting around, basically Mm -hmm. hardly pedaling. Yeah. Uh, and your threshold, in other words, what you could ride at, if you maintain a consistent effort for around an hour, somewhere around seven and a half to eight, Yeah. if you did that or seven, I should say seven, seven and a half, if that's what you use, I, I argue that that's actually a better way to train because you can instantly ride at seven and a half. Whereas otherwise, if you're trying to ride at 175 beats per minute, it might take you a while to get up there yeah. and you might be riding a, a bad thing now. Also, final disclaimer on this I know that RPE drifts over time. Basically, an effort, a five minute interval at seven out of 10 might have you at 300 watts at the beginning of your ride. Mm-hmm. And that five minute interval at the end of your ride, because you're fatigued, even though you feel like you're riding at seven out of 10, 240 might be 240. Yeah. Yep, exactly. So, all that out of the way. Yes. I feel like we just covered a very important thing.
1: We did. It was very XCE of yes, us. Yes, it was. <laughs> that was um, an adjective, by the way.
0: Nice, yes. Also, the uh, last thing. Uh, with with heart rate monitors and or heart rate data please remember that 175 for steven is not the same as 175 for me which is not the same as 175 for you yeah. like it it's so point like in supercross i always see this on the broadcast they're like he's riding at 175 beats per minute big whoop. yeah that's neat yeah neat <laughs> like for some people that's like hardly anything i'm thinking of a uh, trevor Deruze. he's a pro mountain biker for ktm i think his
1: max heart rate's like what Three <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: ninety. It's like a hummingbird, man. Yeah, seriously, um, I think that I remember him saying it's like two thirty or two forty, which I, is insane. Mine's like one
1: ninety-two, and I want to die at one ninety-two.
0: Yeah, and mine's like one eighty-seven. Yeah, and and other people that I know that are super fit are like one fifty. Yeah, one sixty. So What's your resting heart rate? Uh, that's like thirty. Uh, I'm thinking about this thirty-six this week. Thirty-six. Wow. Yeah.
1: Wow, that's low. Indeed. That's like Armstrong low. Lance Armstrong has a really low resting heart rate too. Another good example. Yeah. I am not Lance Armstrong, believe you're it not. or not. <laughs> yeah. Like my resting so. heart rate's in the low 50s when I wake up in the morning typically. Right.
0: And and so once again this just proves the fact that like um it doesn't necessarily mean that you're a faster cyclist. Yeah. That was my or point. A in, better athlete.
1: Yeah, my point in bringing all of that up was yep. that it doesn't matter.
0: Yep. Exactly right. Yeah. So, hopefully that educated everybody on all of that. Yeah. Steven, the business.
1: So the business. Let's get into it. Is business time.
0: Uh, it's actually an, it's something that we thought about well, Tori sent in this question it, it lines perfectly uh, Tori says, I suppose I should have input a silly name such as Trail Slayer or Shredigator. <laughs> so it sounds cool on air. uh Tori's cool too, yeah, yeah he says uh, I think it's or a she? I think it's a political party, what? Uh, The Shredigators? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're almost there. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Uh, He says, it's that time of year and I'm ready for an early Christmas gift to myself. I know I've heard you guys speaking about some lights briefly, but if you can recommend what a good setup on the bars would be and what to use on my helmet. I got two cheap Amazon lights a few years back and they worked decently. I put two on the bars and rode till one gave out. I want to invest in a good light system, so please recommend a way... Oh, by the way, prices between 500 to 1000 would be good. The wife doesn't listen to the show. Keep up the great work. Tori in Paradise, California.
1: Tori, you can buy some really nice stuff for $1,000. Oh, heck this yeah. Is, we're going to keep you under your 500 hopefully.
0: Yeah, you could probably start some fires on the trail with
1: yeah. $1,000. Really? I did it the other day. I do it every night.
0: Um, okay, so Steven and I both uh, have night riding setups, mm-hmm. and we both have different setups. Yeah. And both of them, I, I have points of envy <laughs> that I have for your setup. Okay. And I think that you have a bit of the same on just maybe one aspect on mine. Okay. Um, you go first. Okay. Uh, i just outlining what I do. Yeah. What do you do? What, have. what do you have? So I have jet lights. They don't make them anymore. Mm-hmm. Rip jet lights. Sad day. Poor. Yeah. Um, local company out of Reno actually, but they made an incredible product. Mike Anderson Developed. Developed. <laughs> let's go back to that. Developed a product. Um, they were CNC machine from the outside, really strong sealed units. Yeah. Like uh, I honestly enjoy just threading the end cap off of it because it's, it's so, so smooth. Oh, so nice. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool anyways. And it's got uh, a, like, it looks like a really fat double a. It's like a lithium ion battery. Yeah, That's how it's charged. I believe that they're around 900 lumens each. They're pretty powerful.
1: The the originals were 900. And then I believe the final production ones were, uh, they were either 1,050 or 1,100, but still. so
0: I have the later ones, so went around 1,000. Yeah, Uh, They're very compact. Mm -hmm. And the Mm -hmm. later ones came with a GoPro mount on them, which is awesome. They have just on the back, it's a push button. And so it's purely self-contained. There's no cables, there's no packs, Mm -hmm. right? And in the back, there's a push button. And I feel like I'm saying all this uselessly because people can't buy them. Yeah. But basically, uh, uh, one full click would turn it off. One full click would turn it on. But then you could just like half press it,
1: and it would do. And it medium. would
0: change the intensity. Yeah. It was pretty cool. Um, so uh, they're they have a pretty darn good beam pattern mm-hmm. on them as well. Yeah. Um, I do although I do feel like it was a little hot in the center, mm-hmm. and I feel like it could have spread a little wider yeah. on them. Uh, but the I run one on my helmet and one on my handlebars.
1: So you're running about not 2,000 my, lumens. Yeah. One not hand- on my
0: handlebars, technically, I guess. Okay. I actually have, uh, so since it has a GoPro mount, I have a K-Edge mount in front. Mm-hmm. I actually just mount it to that GoPro mount underneath my K-Edge. Yes. Super clean solution. Yes. It's really nice. Yeah. So I have about 2,000 lumens, mm-hmm. and I keep the one on my head at a higher intensity than one the one I keep on my bars. Okay. And that's to give me some type of definition. Uh, so because a lot of the time, if it's just full bright on both of them, you kind of get flat light, so to speak, mm-hmm. on the trail
1: and you lose definition. You burn everything out on the trail. Yeah. Especially uh, on lighter colored dirt. Yep.
0: It's just like skiing snow on a really cloudy day and you can't see anything. Yeah. Same deal.
1: Yeah. So that's what I have. So in the, in the, other, the other aspect to doing the two different intensities is the ones that are closer to... And this is getting you know really opticsy, mm-hmm. you know, if that's a term, and you know, physical optics. <laughs> Indeed, it is the one closer to the ground. You technically would want to have less intensity for less hot spotting. The one that's up on your helmet, you can run a higher intensity and not get that hot spot because it's another three feet higher off the ground, and usually aim slightly differently.
0: Agreed. Yeah. So, usually it's yeah. headed down the trail more. Yeah. That one. Yeah.
1: So my setup, I just actually upgraded. Um, I've been a fan of Light and Motion for years. I've I used to run their HID systems back in the day. Okay. Um, so they used to have high intensity discharge lights with separate battery packs um, that were amazing. Um, yeah. I had a, a system that you know back in the day was a 3,000 lumen setup, and it was just insane.
0: Just burning rabbits we, all night.
1: Bunny burner's <laughs> oh, So I just upgraded to the new Taz 2000 on my handlebars. With, by Light and Motion. By Light and Motion. Um, that is a. It's got two separate lights, uh, two separate buttons on it. There's three separate LEDs within that. So you have two long distance beams Mm -hmm. that are running out of the same, basically two different reflector bowls, but it's the same part of the housing. Okay. They're straight fire. They're longer distance. Gotcha. Then you have a separate LED that's down in a diffused housing with a diffused cover. And what that's supposed to do is give the wider pattern. So you're getting multiple beam patterns out of this same light. That's clever. The the thing about this light is at 2,000 lumens, it runs 45 minutes longer than its nearest competitor. Wow. At the same so, lumen output, Do you
0: know how long that is? An, An hour
1: one. 45.
0: Wow. So that's one thing I forgot to cover on mine. I get a <clears throat> What I've tested is about an hour and 15 minutes on high, mm-hmm. which is pretty darn impressive yeah. for self-contained light. Yeah. Um, but I can put it on medium and I can get over, I've gotten up to three hours on yeah. medium. And then I had it on low backcountry skiing. I actually brought it up and put it on my helmet, for yeah. backcountry skiing. And it lasted me all the way through four hours. Yeah. Um, and it was still good. Yeah. And that was on low. Yeah. So.
1: So the the light in motion, I believe they claim an hour thirty or an hour forty five on high and then it's like just under four hours, you know, for the medium setting and then something like six and a half for the uh, for nice. the low setting. I'm averaging, I've, I've ridden mine for about two hours on high mm-hmm. and it's, you know, it's yellow getting ready to switch over to red at that point on the battery life meter. So, and it does tell you when the lights on, it actually has a little indicator telling you where the battery is.
0: <laughs> that's clever. So that's, that's kind of Nice cool. to have. Yeah.
1: The cool thing about the Taz also is it works for commuting and all of that. It actually has side firing Amber LEDs that you can turn on and off.
0: This thing is amazing.
1: Yeah. So it has side <laughs> embers that will blink. Um, yeah. they, they go through a pulse mode. They don't actually blink on and off. Cool. So that's my handlebar setup. What do you have on the head? The head, I'm running their new Trail 1000 Fast Charge. Okay. So before I get into that, I do want to say that the one thing that that is a little bit of an issue with the Taz 2000 is it takes eight to nine hours to charge. Wow. It takes a long time.
0: It is a long time.
1: And I usually like to charge my lithium ion batteries on a lower amperage so that you give it more of a trickle charge effect. So yep. it gives you a deeper charge. Mm-hmm. So plugging into my computer at work, it takes nine hours to charge wow. that, that when it's fully dead. Hmm. So then on the handlebars, I'm running the, the Trail FC um, 1000. So it's the Urban 1000 Trail model. Okay. And it's the fast charge. But Do you know what makes it Trail specific? So the Trail specific actually has a different optics pattern. It's the same okay. light. Smart. It's the same same LED same drivers, same everything, same everything is their urban version but the urban trail has a different beam pattern. Okay. So the cool thing about this one is this is my long distance light. Nice. So I have the the TAS 2000 set up to give me uh, basically zone one to three which is like my immediate Mm -hmm. out to intermediate lighting. Gotcha. I run the trail FC on my helmet a little bit higher so that it's where I'm In a corner it's out where i'm looking yes same here and it's usually about 150 feet down the trail is where i want that light to be aimed
0: you'll be amazed when you're riding it at night if you angle that light up how a bit from where you probably have it how much more comfortable you will be with riding at speed
1: especially but just riding in general at night yeah Yeah. so so that setup is about uh as far as modern lights go that's about the best setup 3000 lumens of output. I can ride almost as fast at night as I can in the daytime because I'm be, I'm able to light up that much trail. Yeah. Zero hot spotting out of the light and motion lights. Yeah. The most even spread of light I've ever seen out of any forward facing LED setup.
0: So let's get into so those those <clears throat> are our setups.
1: Those are our setups.
0: Let's get into um some specifics on what people can look for in a light, the things you can ask the manufacturer about yeah. and and kind of figure out. So Lumen output, what would you say is sufficient for mountain biking for, and actually before we do this, let's talk about two versus one and Mm -hmm. where
1: you should put if so two lights, it's a great luxury to have. It is, but they're not, they're not cheap. So, and at, at, uh, sorry, at, at Tory's budget, that mm -hmm. is definitely something that, you know, you can afford to do both and you should do both.
0: Yes. Um, so it's, it's expensive to get two lights and and we totally get that. If you have one light, I recommend putting it on your head, not on the bars. Yes. Would you agree with that then? I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason for that is because your head looks through the trail and it's nice to have that. Otherwise you're bound by where your handlebars are pointing.
1: Yeah. So I'd rather, I'd rather have light where I'm looking instead of where my handlebars are pointing.
0: Exactly. Right. Yeah. So put it on the head if you can. Um, and if you can do both, it's even better now lumen output. Uh, what would you say is the least? Now, granted, not all lumen output is rated exactly the same, but in yeah. an
1: ideal world where it is the, you know, by the book, what yeah. would you say would be the minimum? I think the minimum on a mountain bike is 800. Okay. Yeah. And I'd agree with that. And that depends how fast you want to ride. If you are out leisurely riding and you're not doing anything super aggressive, 800 is more than enough. I mean, you and I, even when we're climbing, yeah, we turn our handlebars off and low. we just have our, our helmet ones on as low as they'll go. Exactly. And that's plenty. Yep. And yeah, in fact, plenty. it gives you kind of a more romantic ambiance, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> yes. When you're out on uh, dude, like a, you know, dude night yeah, yeah. riding bikes. Um, but, but yes, 850, yeah, I think is the eight, eight fifty is about the bare minimum.
0: Yeah. Um, it, excessive. And, and I don't think you need to go over, um, a thousand, like it, in terms of, I, I should say, you kind of get to a point of diminishing returns. Sure. Uh, with this and like, you can have more, but really what it gets down to is it's not just lumen, it's the beam pattern yes. and how that light's being thrown onto the trail. Exactly.
1: How um, much is being wasted, how I much s- is being used.
0: I see a lot of them throw kind of a square pattern. Okay. And I see a lot of them throw like an oval pattern. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like an oval standing up on end. Yeah. So it's longer down the trail. Yeah. Um, what do you feel like is the best type of beam pattern, how it should be thrown down the trail? And this is the shape the light makes if you were to shine it on the trail or on the wall.
1: So here's, I'm going to throw another one to light in motion here. Okay. Their beam pattern is the best. Their beam pattern is set up to be, it mimics a car headlight. Okay. So what that's going to do is that's going to basically give you a trapezoid shape out away from you Mm -hmm. and cut in. A relatively short distance, okay, twenty so to forty feet.
0: It spreads out and then it cuts back in. You're
1: saying? No, it spreads out to a certain point and then it's straight across. Gotcha. Okay. And then there's the with since they have the multiple, uh, the multiple light outputs. Then yeah. you also have the longer distance in the middle. Yeah. So it's almost like if you think of like a candle. Yeah. The output is going to go wide and then it comes back in and then it's narrow. Yeah. further out so they i mean they have the ideal setup if you have just like a single bulb if you have a single bulb i like to see something that like jet lights has a more oval pattern yep because if you think a uh, jet lights is very similar it, i always think that they're mag lights yeah, that's yeah. what they kind of look like yep yeah they do so they, they have, they have the, a very like almost military feel to yeah. them so, so like they, if you
0: put them on the side of an ar-15 it would feel appropriate
1: so they essentially have a very a very round pattern. When you throw that onto the road at the angle that the light is sitting, it's going to oval out and give you that nice distance. So that's that's going to be with a single light setup. Yes and a single led yeah. within that light. Yep. That's going to be about your best pattern.
0: I agree. I found the square ones that are just square to be a bit uh, uh, frustrating and, yeah. and kind of have like a harsh drop off and light in motion was super clever to have like the multiple one, ones to get around and get the best of both worlds. Yes. Um, I've also, and I, that beam pattern, I've used it on road bikes. When i was doing the Rockwell relay, I was riding through Zion national park at like 45 miles an hour yeah. and on the road with no moon whatsoever yeah. plenty of light on mid yeah. even in that case yeah. so um, but the, and the problem, beam pattern super comfortable yes
1: it's super comfortable but the thing you also have to remember is that beam pattern with your single led output it's going to have a hard edge it does it doesn't diminish out to the sides where you get some trail features off the edge you know you were telling me about on that relay where you were coming down a road that's on a spine yeah. you had no idea that you were going to die if you yeah. went off the road <laughs> yeah. on either side Had no clue had no clue <laughs> yeah which might have been a good thing yeah, yeah very. but in that situation with something like a light in motion or something like, you know, Knight Rider has their multiple beams. Um, Cygolite has theirs in their Triton series that are going to actually help disperse light out to the sides. You would have been aware of that danger.
0: Yep. Yeah, exactly. So it can be helpful. That said on single track, I've found that this is usually more than sufficient to have one. Yes. Um, you're probably good with that. Um, now powering the lights, that's another thing to look into because so we've covered lumen output, we've covered the ideal beam patterns Mm -hmm. and now, how it's powered some have external packs with like wires some are self-contained some have a battery that you put in there and some are just like there's a lithium ion pack built into it and you just charge it with usb or something of the sort what do you prefer
1: um i would prefer something and this is why i'm sad that jet lights doesn't exist anymore because they had a fully rechargeable but also replaceable lithium ion it's sweet so if and i've had
0: mine for three years and they've spent a lot of time fully discharged at times and they're but the batteries perform flawlessly. Yeah. And so That's the good
1: awesome. thing the good thing about those is that you could carry one extra charged battery pack around with you. And if mm-hmm. one of your lights dies, you just unscrew the back, throw the new one in, That's off awesome. you go. <laughs> Me, I got to have a USB port to charge for nine hours in between them. So can you charge that light while simultaneously using it? Uh, yes. So
0: the one tip that I would say with this And this is like super nerdy. I know you're
1: talking about carrying a little battery cell around with you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And basically like if you do have something that's like super long and you need to use that light, what you can do is you can get, um, X lab makes a torpedo or you Mm -hmm. can get a specialized keg or you could get one from fabric, for example, but you get basically a storage thing that fits into your bottle cage. Mm -hmm. Then you can throw in there, just throw in like a USB power, a USB power pack. Yeah. And then run that cable up to your lights. Yeah. You know, that's not a bad idea. Something to, to get it going. And that's like a cleaner way to do it rather than like trying to duct tape a power pack to your bars or frame yeah.
1: or something. I was going to say zip tie, but yeah. Yeah,
0: that could work yeah. too. Um, also, I've found that, uh, so older lights, a lot of the time they'll have like wires to almost like a really heavy duty headlamp that mm-hmm. has like wires to a, an external battery pack. They yeah. might even have cooling fins on that thing. Yeah. Um, I've found it, that's that's good, but it's i found that most modern lights don't rely on that anymore. Yeah. It's self-contained.
1: Yeah, usually it's going to be self-contained. Um, the higher end, like the Seika, you know, the larger Seika units from Light and Motion, and a few of the Night Riders still have the water bottle keg battery setup. Yeah, but those are getting into the really high lumen count and. You don't necessarily need that. You're just getting you more battery life out of the same output of like a Taz 2000 or a Triton 1700 or something yeah. like that.
0: And in most cases, your night ride is going to be probably short. Yeah. Um, I, it, I don't usually you know. do on night rides more than 10, 12 miles. Yeah. Yeah. They're pretty short. Yeah. So granted, they're long times too, like a 24 hour race. Um, yeah. and like we said, in that case, make sure you have everything charged and maybe bring a battery pack. Yep. Um, the mounting interface is something to discuss too. Mm-hmm. And it's actually just brought to mind a different, uh, brand that I want to talk about too, but, um, um, I really love that the jet it sucks, man. I wish they were still made, but have a GoPro one because yeah. it's pretty easy to find a variety of GoPro mounts. Of course. Yeah. And even some helmets come with a GoPro mount, yeah. so you can just put it right on there. Yeah. Um, but what, what system do yours use? The Taz ones?
1: So the, the Taz 2000 comes with a GoPro mount. Cool. It also comes with the quick rubber strap, which is what I use Handy. because I don't have a um, a K-Edge or GoPro mount or anything on the front of my bike. Yep. So I don't like that because I don't mount a computer to my bike because yep. I'm using a Phoenix 3 Sapphire on, um, the wrist. on the wrist. So that is quick and easy for me because then I can just pop it off and I have no evidence of it being on the bars. That's pretty and cute. it works really well. And it's five seconds to throw the thing on and off. Yep. Now my my helmet mount, the, the – Duct tr- tape. The, duct tape, yes, <laughs> lots of Gorilla tape. Um, that unit is actually – my my helmet has a GoPro mount. So the GoPro mount that comes with the trail 1000 FC, um, is I just put that onto it and it it works perfect.
0: Uh, straps. I've seen people use like strap ones. If you do that, make sure that you're going through the vents. I've seen people try to wrap it around their head, uh, like a, like a bandage or something and it's not a great solution. Um, so you wrap that through the vents, then back up usually and over, uh, Garmin does make lights. Mm-hmm. And I neglected to mention these um, and they have something really cool to them. But the cool part about that is that a lot of the time you can just put it on your Garmin mount yeah, um, and then just throw your Garmin in your back pocket because you're probably not interested in your data at night anyway, unless you're stopped and looking at maps. yeah. So unless you're training at night, which is a little weird, but because then you're not getting good sleep and that training probably isn't going to have a good effect. Unless,
1: unless you're training for like the 24 hours of old Pueblo.
0: Or if you're a bat because you're nocturnal anyway. So, but bats
1: don't have thumbs. They can't even shift
0: lights. this. It's like, true. what are we doing here? So uh, the one really cool thing that they have going on, since they can tie in to your devices, since mm-hmm. it's Garmin, their lights are actually AMP plus capable, which mm-hmm. means that they compare to your head unit or to your speed sensor. Okay. And the cool thing is they tie in speed with intensity automatically. Yes. Yeah. And it works very well. Yeah. I tested it out on their newest one that they had, and it's Sea Otter. Mm-hmm. And we rode through like, um, a whole variety of things out there. And I know people are thinking you can't go fast at sea otter. <laughs> I don't know what you mean, <laughs> but we were riding on really tight single track stuff. You know, how dense the vegetation is there yeah. and it was it was like, uh, you don't realize that it's a pain to turn your lights down every time you're climbing, then turn them up once you descend Yeah. until you use that. And then after that, you're like, oh gosh, this is living in the third world here. You know, like (laughs) it's so nice to have that. And it works really well. Gotcha. Uh, so as you go faster, the light gets brighter. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's pretty sweet.
1: Yeah. And they, the new models up to 800 lumens, right?
0: Yeah. And I found it to be sufficient. I wouldn't say that it was like Mine, I feel comfortable in the fact that I have plenty to spare. Yeah, but this one, I felt like it was sufficient. Okay, so really cool lights that they have on that. Um, can we cover tail lights really quick?
1: Yes, not needed. No, they're they're very much needed, and I'm gonna get to why they're needed. <laughs> well,
0: well, can I cover this really quick? Go ahead. I, I I go on night rides with people sometimes, and they show, and I don't know who they are. I know we show up, and they have like a blinking tail light. And it's like a 300 lumen blinking taillight. <laughs> and every time it flashes in front of me, it's just blinding me. And I want to tell them, it's cool, dude. Like I can see you because I've got a light shining on you. Like yeah. I don't need a taillight to tell me where you are.
1: Well, I think some people just don't think about that. I know. There's like taillight, night riding, go. That's so why I'm just like
0: yeah. kind of telling people don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> if you're listening to this. so. Yeah. Um. But we actually, yeah, you showed me a very, a much better usage for your taillight.
1: Yeah. So since I since I started using light in motion again, um, I have their Viz one eighty tail light for when I'm on the pavement. Okay. So what I did, I have an old Surface Thunderbolt 60. It's, I think, the UTL 60. Okay. And we use that when we were doing our road running things. Yes, I I have run before. The Reno Tahoe Odyssey, I've done a few Dark, times. Dark,
0: confused time for yeah, you. It very, yeah,
1: it's very, very yeah. weird. Yeah. Um, I found myself, though. I found <laughs> salvation <Yeah>. on wheels. <laughs> okay. Um, and so we use that taillight during our running races, mm. and I've had no use for it. Ever since then, it's got a built-in USB rechargeable lithium-ion battery, and it's a gnarly 150 lumen. It's, it's, it's a br- It's a bright taillight. So what I did was I actually fabbed up a mount to strap it to a, um, a key ring. And then I hung it from Moose's collar. Moose is your dog. Moose is my dog. Yeah. And so he runs around with that hanging from his his collar so that when he's running around, it's bouncing side to side and it's throwing red flashy light all over the mountains. Super easy to see him. Yeah. From a mile away, we could see him chasing rabbits. Yeah. Like it's t- in pitch black. It's also very Christmas and festive it is. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, so that's what you should be using taillights for. Yeah. It's actually not for point. your bike. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, let's cover really quickly the gear. Um, so, uh, with night riding, first thing you need to make sure that you have, I feel like are glasses that are clear. Yes. Uh, if not, just don't like, I've seen people even riding with their dimmed lenses at yeah. night because they're trying to get eye protection. Yeah. Don't do it.
1: Yeah. Last night I it's forgot. Dangerous. I forgot to bring my clear lenses with me and I just rode without glasses yeah. because I would rather be teary eyed than try to look through a yes. monochromatic tinted lens yeah. when it's pitch out. Yeah.
0: And it's always dangerous. Of course, there's its own set of dangers of riding without glasses and we get that. We Almost. don't endorse riding yeah. without them, but just uh, so you know there. Um, so yeah, the at- with <laughs> glasses, I would recommend that. Um uh, also with goggles, one thing I would caution against, like with people using goggles at night, a lot of the time, if you have a scratch lens, which happens a ton with goggles because mm-hmm. they scratch really easily, yeah. uh, it will react badly if you have a lot of light around you or or anything like that. So yeah. it's, it's not that great. Um, you'll also just want to pack layers. Yeah. Uh, I think that's the best way to say overall for warmth, right? Yeah, like, absolutely. Because you'll be climbing up and be really warm and then maybe descending and getting cold. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so. so
1: I always, my go-to on typical, um, days, I, you know, if it's, if it's in the forties, thirties, mm-hmm. what I'll end up doing is I'll do warmer gloves. Mm-hmm. I never do a skull cap cause I will overheat on my head if I ever have anything in there. Yeah. Um, and Same. then I usually do like one of my really light North face jackets yep. over an insulated Jersey, like a long sleeve insulated XC Jersey. Um, and that's about the most I get until it's like in the twenties. Then I'm thinking full insulated, you know, leggings, like full pants. And you know, then you're talking a whole different, then I'm skiing, then you're skiing. Exactly. So (laughs) not on my bike. (laughs) Exactly. Well, what if it's 20 degrees outside and sunny and no snow? Uh, then
0: I'm training inside anyway, because that's what I should be doing regardless of weather. Is that okay? That's fair. Yeah. That's fine. (laughs) I did. <laughs> what you do, you all right? Yeah. Um, l- one tip that I wanted to add to you on cameras, if you want to use a GoPro night, I see a lot of people do that with bad results, mm-hmm. and the best way to do it is to power or to partner with a very powerful light, and to make sure that that light is shining where the camera is pointing. Yes. I know that sounds very simple, but uh, people miss mess that or mess mess that up. But the main thing that you can do to get better video quality at night is to stabilize the camera. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is, uh, so basically when a camera doesn't have as much light to deal with, it really picks up the gain or the ISO In a lot of cases and you get a very grainy image. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you have more light, then it doesn't have to pick that up. It's a less grainy image, which really helps. So the blacks and the darks are less muddy and crappy looking. Yeah. But uh, above that too, when you stabilize a camera, it actually makes it so that the image is, is better as well. So, um, so if you have like a gimbal. The best, where it becomes most helpful is at night. Yeah. So, um, trails, let's cover that last thing. First time? Yeah.
1: Riding at night. Always pick the easiest trails that you enjoy riding.
0: Yeah, because even the easy is, ones. <laughs> it is
1: a different thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Even the easy ones become fun and scary or scary. Yeah. Um, but they, they, it becomes a challenge again. Yeah. is a cool part about it. And that's what I really like. Uh, I would also recommend trails if you can that have like cool views that are good at night. So like part over a city. Place? Yeah. Or over the ocean. Uh, that sort of a thing. It's really cool to see that at yeah. night. Like, look at
1: answer. our Instagram, the picture that, you know, you posted from our last Friday night excursion. Indeed. That was an awesome, there awesome view.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah. Um, and also, I would recommend within reason, just to stay away from stuff that gets too technical, mm-hmm. um, within reason. And you, for each person, they decide what's technical, just because, once again, it gets really tough. And if you get hurt at night, there's less passerbys on the trail, and, you know, that could be tough. Exactly. Steven, let's close it off with the tips. Okay.
1: You don't care they're
0: counting on your tips to live? Let's tie back into night riding with yours, actually.
1: Yeah, yeah. So after I discovered the the tail light hangy thing set up for moose, yes, um, I ended up finding a company on Instagram, um, Halo Lights. Okay. So they're a U.S. made LED ring collar. They're they're a halo. Did you find these people on Instagram or did you find them at burning man? No, I found them on Instagram and and they're, they're a dog specific. (laughs) Okay. um, They're not even dog specific because they do advertise using them for certain other purposes. But what they are is a silicone ring with a battery pack and then a string of LEDs and it's shoved into this silicone ring ring. Yep, and it's not made to be a full collar. You would never leash your dog with it and then, you know, have a, a leash attached to it. But so what um, I ended up doing is ordering a few different ones of theirs in different colors. And it's just this little lithium ion USB rechargeable silicone soft collar. And I ended up getting two green ones and me being the weirdo that I am, I decided to hop it up a little bit. Of and course. what I did is I took one of them completely apart and I shoved the LED string backwards into the, the silicone other housing of the other one. So I have one LED collar it's like with double two powered. sets of lights and two sets of batteries. Nice. So Moose runs around looking like a green little alien <laughs> and, and I can see him just as far far as the red blinky tail light, And uh, I actually tried it out last night for the first time. They lasted for an hour and a half on the trail and they were still over 50% charged. And you, they have different flash modes. So they have on constant, they have fast flash and they have slow flash. That's pretty cool. And it, it worked out really well. It's awesome. They're like 35 bucks. So they're a little expensive. But the reason that I did this was we went on a night ride and I had a very cheap LED collar for Moose mm-hmm. and, um, and he almost got hit by another mountain biker coming down the trail because the mountain biker didn't see him.
0: Yo, So I want scary. Moose
1: visible. Yes. I want him to, and he knows how to get out of the way of the trail, but at night it's just a different experience and he just, yeah, yeah. yeah. So he almost got hit. And so I'm like, no, I want him to be way more visible. So that's cool. Halo lights. They're awesome.
0: Nice. Um, my tip is going to be the rogue TB2 trap bar or some people call it a hex bar and it's a weightlifting thing. And I think that not enough cyclists, uh, spend time lifting weights. And I think that they should, and I'm not just saying like, you know, just, you know, leg press all day at all, like just isolating those muscles and working on those, Yeah. Uh, I think that we become pretty unhealthy overall because we don't do enough well-rounded stuff and we can't even support basic tasks in life, you yeah, know, absolutely. like, uh, lifting up your kid can throw out your back. That sort mm-hmm. of a thing, you know, yeah. uh, get the dog food and it throws out your back. So, uh, in this case. Uh, we, so here at train road, we have a very, very good gym, mm-hmm. <laughs> very nice gym that we've built and a
1: nicer gym than most gyms. Oh yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> um, but it's, so the thing about it is this is like the creme de la creme, mm-hmm. uh, hex bar, you can get a trap bar. Um, but you can find other ones on, on Amazon that are great. Yeah. Uh, what a hex bar is, is basically it has like, it's, a, they call it a hex bar because it's kind of like got a hexagon that you stand in. So actually I should start with a normal weightlifting bar mm-hmm. and imagine you're doing a deadlift and a deadlift is. Well, you can Google it if you don't know what it is. Um, but basically one of the problems with deadlifts a lot of the time and, and people throw out their back for many reasons doing a deadlift. But one of the big problems is the fact that some people have extremely long femurs, let's say, or just maybe they don't have the strength and, the, and, and and everything else, the muscle recruitment patterns to make this happen, but yeah. they have to move the bar over their knees, like over their shins, right? And it kind of scrapes up their shins and over their knees. Yeah. And then they feel like, okay, now I can stand up. yeah. And what, that can put people in a compromising position and make them throw out their back yes. a lot of the time. Yeah. Now it could be argued mm-hmm. that, Well, if you're, you know, if you're in that situation, you should just become stronger and have proper technique to come over it. And I totally get that or use less weight or whatever. There's Yep. I get. Yeah, Yeah. it it totally makes sense. But at the same time, uh, sometimes it's nice to not have to worry about that issue. If your goal is not to be an Olympic powerlifter that's getting judged or or going into
1: competitions. And the other problem with that is on a deadlift, your weight is technically not in your center of gravity. It's out forward of your center of gravity. So then it complicates things even worse with muscle recruitment and Balance and yeah. all of that.
0: It causes the shoot that people talk about when you know you shoot your waist backwards and then you end up you know arching your back a lot of the time and yeah. rounding your back and things go bad. Yeah. So, uh, deadlifts are great exercise for cyclists. They should absolutely work on them. Uh, posterior chain, a lot of good things. And in this case, a hex bar. You just stand in the middle of a hexagon basically, and you have handles to your side, and then you can just stand directly up. Yeah. It still has the weight hanging on the on the far outsides of the of the hex bar. Yep. But you basically stand within a cutout area and you can just stand straight up. So that's a really cool option to be able to have. And you can get pretty cheap ones, relatively speaking on Amazon that I've actually heard are pretty good and you can use those. So it's a good way for you to get back in the gym and do so with less fear on
1: hurting your back or anything else like that. Yeah, absolutely. So... Uh, Steven, that covers it. Would that be an XC or gravity based weight training thing? Everything. All of it. A roadie,
0: everything. Everybody should be doing that stuff.
1: Roadies, especially. Yeah. They yeah. can't even open beer. Yeah. Exactly. Most of the time. Yeah. So maybe they don't want to, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Weirdos road. <laughs> don't be such a roadie. Right. <laughs> and
0: with that, uh, you can submit your questions to mtbpodcast.com. You can go on there, check everything out and we'll talk to you all next week. Have a nice day.